and welcome to Landscape Photography World, the podcast for everyone passionate about landscape photography. I'm Grant Swinburne and I'll be your host on the show talking to landscape photographers about their motivations, likes and dislikes. This podcast is sponsored by Syncback Pro, the professional photographer's tool to keep your images safe. How safe are your photographs? Or to put it this way, how would you feel if you permanently lost some or even all of them? The fact is, there are very real risks in storing your digital images on a hard drive, even if they're backed up to an external device. There's ransomware, hardware failure, file corruption, virus infection, and even accidental deletion or destruction. Syncback Pro makes this problem go away permanently. Syncback Pro is the professional photographer's tool to back up photographs, images, documents, and data files. Once set up, it keeps your files safe, quietly and reliably in the background. So if problems occur or disaster strikes, you'll have nothing to worry about. Your photographs will be safe. Which is why it's also the backup solution that I use myself for my own photographs. Take advantage of an exclusive 25% discount today by going to www.backup.sg. The software will never expire, meaning your photographs are safe forever. That's www.backup.sg. Give your photographs the protection they deserve. And now, on with the show. Born in New Zealand to a Dutch boat builder and American nun, Paul Holland has managed to put his four passports to good use. After much exploring, he eventually chose to base himself in the beautiful wild island of Tasmania in 1998. Paul has won numerous accolades and awards for his imagery, both nationally and internationally including three times winner of the AIPP Tasmanian Professional Photographer of the Year, six times AIPP Tasmanian Landscape Photographer of the Year, and two times Overseas Photographer of the Year in New Zealand. On an industry level, he's been awarded AIPP Master of Photography and a fellowship of the NZIPP. He judges regularly at a state, national and international level and writes regularly for several magazines. He's also an industry ambassador for Asuka Book in Australia and New Zealand, and his fine artwork is represented by One Fine Print and the Source Photographica Galleries in Melbourne and Aspen, USA. He is also a proud member of the exciting and progressive fine art landscape collaborative, The Light Collective. When not travelling for his destination-based projects, his work is based in Hobart. He works commercially with many Tasmanian-based hotels, businesses, and shoots a range of events captures boutique weddings and unique natural light portraiture and continues to build his collection of unique fine art landscapes. We discuss the landscape photography culture in Tasmania, the contradictions of conservation and social media exposure of wilderness areas, along with much, much more. I hope you enjoy the show. G'day, Paul. Welcome to the Landscape Photography World. How are you going? Well, it's a magnificent day in Tasmania. You, you wouldn't know what season it is, summer, autumn, winter. It's just one of those blue sky perfect days. I've, uh, I've got my new electric mountain bike charge ready to go out the door as soon as this is finished, uh, Grant, actually, so I can Fantastic. All right. get well, out on the trails. I don't want, don't, don't want to keep you from uh, getting out on the, on the trails, but uh, really excited to have you with me today. You've been on my list for a little while and uh, it's it's great to get you uh, get you on board. Why don't we start with, um, and I don't want to go too back, too far back in history, but uh, why don't we start with what got you started in photography and in particular landscape photography? Yeah, that, that is going back a fair way, Grana. 
I was a late bloomer in some ways, but at the same time, I've probably been shooting for about 30 years. So 25, probably a little bit more considerate, really. The first five years, I was I was doing a lot of exploratory trips and solo trips and sort of semi-mountaineering in New Zealand and, and the South Island in particular. Uh, I was studying down in Dunedin at Otago University, and they have really prolific tramping clubs and different groups that go on a lot of adventures. Um, I was doing a bit of big wave surfing in those days. So I was really going a lot of remote places and, and having these incredible adventures. And And I guess my motivation initially was quite selfish. It was, oh, I just I just want to relive that, or I just want oh. to take myself back there, or oh, I just somehow this moment's so special. I don't want it to be gone. And so I was almost like grabbing onto these moments where mm. I wanted to to have them with me forever. And a few years later, I just started realizing that, geez, not so many people are, are experiencing what I'm, what I'm experiencing and, and just how special and moving and evocative and transformative and even healing it can be spending time in wild places and, and all these adventures. So, so I became a little bit more excited about sharing it and that sort of then evolved a little bit further and totally self-taught, no training. I, I just slowly just figured things out on my own in film days Mm-hmm. Uh, it took me a long time before I had my own camera. I borrowed probably four or five cameras and lost probably three of them <laughs> to the point <laughs> I realized I can't borrow anybody else's or uh, somebody's going to shoot me. So uh, I think I got a loan from my mum and bought like a oh, EOS 50, I think it was. Right. I had quite a lot of, I had an EOS Mew before that, like no, a Olympus Mew, a little point shoot one that just fit in my pocket and went everywhere. Yeah, yeah. A little film camera. And then the 50 was probably my first more serious um, camera that I moved to. As I got more serious into it, I bought an EOS 3, which was the close to flagship Canon. And it actually had this inbuilt eye-controlled autofocus, which for some yeah. reason they haven't brought out until the R3. Maybe yeah, they, they took it away through most of the most of the D series, didn't they? Yeah, for about 20 years it disappeared. Um, <laughs> so I've been a Canon shooter most of my life uh, I have tried lots of different styles and types of cameras and I personally see a camera as a box that collects light and everything that makes a photograph great is is the vision the the relationship the the timing the compositional skills the understanding of light which has nothing to do with the camera um, that being said they're getting a little clever these days so from there I moved into a career in wilderness adventure therapy So that was 25 years ago I started that in Tasmania uh, when I moved to Australia. Uh, I fell in love and followed a girl. That's how I ended up over here. (laughs) And we had five special years together in Tassie and I fell in love with Tasmania. Um, Never heard of the place, but goodness me, it's it's a magnificent place to call home. Uh, And that's saying something when you're coming from New Zealand. Yeah, definitely. And so I, I was out there shooting the landscapes and working out on country, doing sort of week-long remote area trips, all sorts of places, you know, big snow alpine trails. And we did a lot of caving, abseiling, climbing, bushwalking, sea kayaking um, in remote areas. But we were working with recovering addicts and street kids and, and single mums and Aboriginal families and people with, um, you know, physical challenges. And the idea was to use the wilderness as a therapeutic medium. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think landscape photographers all in their own way ha- have their own kind of more deeper personal 
relationship with why and how they're so drawn to spend time in beautiful natural wild places i think it's very it's very balancing it really gets your perspective back in order the kind of things we get caught up in in our day-to-day lives these days you realize when you're out there it doesn't really matter that much so it's sort of it's a good realign and it it can be very very healing for people that haven't spent time out there that find a lot of peace and space and opportunity to reflect and connecting with the natural world through you know millennia and all sorts of cultures has you know has been a part of um uh, of healthy management of, of well-being mm-hmm. and so being a little bit more conscious of that and and you know just being out there shooting landscape photographs for the for the love as as part of the experience so i slowly started weaving moments with people and landscape okay you know and and i realized soon after that a, a lot of the connection that they made the really powerful beautiful moments that they experienced out of these wild places were a photo of can bring you back to them it could anchor those experiences deeper it could you know in a moment when they got back and things got rough again which it often was for a lot of the clients i work with you know they could relive the experience they can almost take themselves back there mm. and find that peace again and find that sense of connection with a wild place and a photographer's always had that capacity to do that you know to me it's like a it's like a window with a frame and you can yep grab the frame with your hands and shove your head straight back into that moment and feel what you were feeling and the smells and the colors and the sounds and, and you can relive it. And, and it's a moment you can always reach back into. And for people whose lives, you know, aren't particularly great um, relative to, to my pretty blissful one. It's, um, it's a real gift to do that. And I became more and more conscious and actually started weaving photography into the therapeutic design of the program to the point where in the last decade or more photography became a huge part of the programs hmm. and we had people that couldn't necessarily read or write um, and some even that couldn't even speak and so I sort of became the voice of their experience to the people around them or, yeah. or the people that love them that that couldn't understand what was so transformative about this experience in a wild place and so it also not only did it just reach them back into those places it, it helped redefine their relationship with 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 the world they live in and also how they saw themselves and how other people saw them because they're often overcoming fears and and taking on challenges that no one thought they were capable of doing well here's the evidence you know here i am going over a cliff or pushing past my fear of the water and the ocean or you know going through a tiny hole in the ground and a deep cave that you know would scare most people and it is this tangible undeniable evidence and you know, just wild places are just, just so powerful. And I, I've, you know, fallen in love in Tasmania. It has one of the largest, most well-protected land masses of wilderness in the world. I think it's like 33% world heritage and maybe 45, 50 of that is pretty well protected. And, you know, I, it's essential for my well-being. And, and so landscape photography is my vehicle uh, or my excuse, as it were, to, to kind of go to church, as it were, and <laughs> that, if I have a church at all, it's it's the wilderness. Yeah, fantastic. So what is it that about that, I guess, that you're trying to express in terms of art? So taking it from, yes, that experience and sharing that experience, is that the end goal in creating the art or is it more about creating a beautiful image? 
I mean, there's personal reasons and there's professional reasons. It's, it's, it gets a yeah. little, I think it's a little different. If you're working purely as an artist, it's a little bit different if you're working also like I am as a, as a working professional as well. From a personal point of view, it's my reason for getting out there yeah. uh, often. And it's a tool for connecting. Like I, I notice things that I just walk past otherwise um, if I'm not in the in the space of of reaching and surrendering and opening to to the creation of images and I, my process is a little bit that way i i'm not very um pre-visualized or tied into outcomes with my photography i'll, I'll research a place mm-hmm. i'll get there in the right season the right time of day the right light uh, and with the right gear but once i'm out there I, i'm just kind of surrendering and almost allowing what what nature's voice as it were wants to come through and i'm saying i'm here i'm ready uh, what would you like to dance with where would you like me to play you know how would you like me to be your voice i guess and that sounds a little bit altruistic but from a very practical point of view i spent at least 20 years being seriously involved with conservation organizations so yeah and i think you know there's almost like a spiritual aspect to it i guess like I think after about a decade or 15 years, I asked people, well, what do you see in my work or what defines my style, which is a really hard thing to do when you're just working it out yourself and you can't yep. really be objective. And people would say they just felt there was an element of spirituality in my work. And oh. how do you define that? How can you put that in words? I don't know. But, you know, I use that word church and I'm a, I'm a non-religious person, but I think I'm probably a spiritual person in that. I feel like spirituality is a very important part of well-being and I feel most at peace and most connected with both myself and the world when I'm in a wild place. Yeah. yeah. And so when I take the time to create that relationship and foster and nurture that relationship with, with, with the wild places myself, it then starts sort of weaving through the imagery somehow or somehow is automatically drawing in because that's the way I'm seeing and how I'm feeling and what I'm open to in terms of, what the landscape has to present to me. And so it's a bit of a intuitive kind of process for me. And I'm a very feeling based sort of person. So, so I'm looking for feeling in my images, I guess. Um, And I tend to, the more established and experienced I get with a technical side of photography, it becomes less and less about that and more and more about story and feeling and narrative and emotion. And I think you know, if, you, if you're going to be successful and purposeful with, say, conservation-based images, you've got to touch people somehow. You've got yeah. to find a chord that somehow resonates or, or, or just inspires people to, to deeply connect with a place they might not otherwise know because there's some quality in there that's coming through that, that just sort of transcends the mind and just reaches someplace in you that, that is just deeper and beyond. And have I done that? I don't know. Um, is that an intention? I'd say yes. Uh, do I feel like there's an exact process to do that? No. Um, <laughs> but it's certainly certainly a purpose and, and I guess something I'm present to more and more. And I think to do that well, you've got to be pretty on top of yourself as well. If you're not in a good headspace or you're caught up in your mind, you're not going to really create those kind of images anyway. Yeah. Totally. So. I try and leave a bit, a fair bit of space around my process. So by the time I get there, I'm very present. Mm. And that actually involves a bit of work on yourself, actually yep. reigning in the mind and, 
and you know getting on top of the things in your life that might be taking you out of balance and i and i also realized that one of the ways that i stay in balance is is to head out there and so photography is just a tool for me i i could write i could dance i could sing you know there's a lot of different mediums that i feel like could be a great um, vehicle for creative expression that also have the same capacity so i'm not super tied to photography as a be all end all uh that being said i just live and breathe it and uh, as far as i can tell i probably will until the day i die yeah you talked a little bit about using photography for a tool for environmental education and advocacy how do you see that role for photographers, uh, landscape photographers in general, playing in promoting those conservation e- efforts? Well, I mean, there's so much history there already, and, and there's so many wonderful photographers that have, have gone well before us, you know, right back from the first national parks in, in Yosemite, you know, hundreds of years ago. It's, uh, but I feel like I, I really got exposed to that here in Tasmania. Yeah. There is an incredible lineage of landscape photography uh, being used for conservation purpose very intentionally um, for, for generations here. And I, as much as I was aware of that in New Zealand, I literally met those people. Um, I literally had, you know, like Grant Dixon was in my house 15 minutes ago, you know. Yeah. yeah and Rob Blakers lives just around the corner from my house. Chris Bell is just up the hill. Yeah. Uh, and they were kind of mentorees of a sort under Peter Dravoskis and Olegas Trehanis and, and yeah. it goes back further than that. So Tasmania has a very strong, very actuated lineage of, of people that have dedicated huge amounts of their time and their craft as landscape photographers to, to conservation and to great effect. And even though Peter Dravoskis wasn't inherently a conservationist at heart, um, arguably his imagery has is, is been some of the most powerful imagery in modern history, certainly in Australian history for that effect. Mm. And, and so we, there's a really, there's a really strong culture around that still. So I've woven and I, and it's, there's different ways to dance. Grant, you can, you yep. can inspire people through beauty. You can educate people by searching out new and rare and endangered species and, and that few things have been photographed but you can also challenge people. Yeah. And, and I think that's also a relevant tool in the arsenal of, of how to operate as a, um, not necessarily successful, but, but as, as an impactful photographer. And it's a fine line. So I've done a lot of work with Bob Brown and the Bob Brown Foundation for 20 years. Um, I'm heading out uh, next week, the week after, on the Art for Tekana project and just put in some images for an exhibition yesterday morning where we're directly using art as a tool for conservation, and that's art with a huge range of mediums. And that's been very successful and very positivist. It's it's not like you know, reaping, you know, just photos of destruction. It's not over-polarizing. Beauty and, and art is a way of connecting with people that's very universally accessible. Yeah, yeah. And it always has and will be, I think. It, it transcends politics and, and um, your everyday kind of media. It just reaches something primal in our beings that, that we can all kind of relate to somehow. Um, mm. So art is, is a powerful medium and always will be. And yet I also co-created a group called The Light Collective. And yep. I've got a bunch of photographers together who we're really some of the best upcoming guys in Australia, their craft, Adam Williams, Ricardo de Cunha, Luke Austin, Ignacio Palacios. And 
And we spent half a year kind of deliberating about what directions we want to go in and what kind of values were going to keep us together. And we, we slowly realized that a high conservation focus was going to be a great rally point to give us sort of purpose and drive and motivation to take on bigger projects. Yeah, right. So the second to last project we did was, was the Great Barrier Reef. And here's an example where we chose to, to use that element of challenge a little bit more as well. So the first project we did was on Kaditunda Lake Air, and that's a very remote, powerful place that's quite mystical to us, but it's also mm. being threatened by um, the water tables drying up from all the unlimited mining access and all the springs and waterways and the area is starting to dry up and the Aboriginal people are struggling to walk their land anymore because there's no water. And yep. that's a very subtle untold story. And we used really beauty as as the main tool, I guess, in the conversation there to engage people, to inspire people with, with conserving that landscape. But the second project, we we realised, well, the Great Barrier Reef has been photographed for 100, 150 years. What, what could we do that hasn't already been done well and even better than, than we could do? And at the time, there was huge conversations in Queensland about, you know, building the world's biggest coal mine. Yeah, the coal ports and, yeah. Coal ports, and it was very present and very topical. And we are like, and, okay. And massive coral bleaching events, yeah. Yeah, lots of bleaching going on. And they were looking at sending 500 ships of, of cheap-grade coal to India to burn for electricity, which is, you know, oh, the most destructive yeah. form of, of electricity production in the world. And. So we're like, well, are we actually serving a greater purpose by just taking pretty pictures of what's left of the Great Barrier Reef? And we decided that that no, we're not using our voice to the capacity that we could. So we changed the project from blue to black and blue. Right. And we titled it Black and Blue, Coal or Coral. And we created this really powerful juxtaposition of the Queensland coal mining industry and the, and the Great Barrier Reef and mm. elements of the reef that were both healthy and elements that were actually you know, degrading and, and falling away through bleaching because yep. the cycle of conservation, even though coal isn't directly responsible for that, it does really successfully symbolise the forces that are. So the burning of fossil fuels and, and the rising sea temperatures as a result is what's killing the reefs. So we didn't point any fingers, we didn't name any names, we didn't say where anything was, yep. and we used quite abstract work to, to make the work quite accessible and not too polarising. Because um, if you go too far, you know, you're not going to reach the kind of, <laughs> excuse me, the audience that counts. Yeah. Eyes closed, ears closed. Yeah. You want to reach the middle, the middle audience, I guess. Yeah. The undecided ones that, you know, is climate change for real? Do, do I need to be more proactive about, you know, who I support politically or, you know, where I spend my money with ethical organisations? You know, that, that's where the great change needs to happen. Yeah. Um, and if you're overly polarised, then then you lose access to that audience straight away. So, but that was our first kind of like, well, let's let's use the element of challenge as well in that conversation as photographers, and that juxtaposition creates this disharmony that you you can't really sit with them side by side with ease. You kind of need to fall down the fence one side or the other, and then then ask some questions as to why you're there and how you feel, and and you know what role or or conscious kind of lifestyle do you want to have relative to this conversation which you know it's a huge icc report released actually last night grant that's um that's not looking pretty and yep. and i guess we decided collectively that we're not serving the world by sitting on the fence and and just not making a stand yeah. there's yeah. always a risk when you stay, take a stand as an artist but there's also 
potential power and change that comes from it. So yeah. our current project is the Tarkon. And the Tarkon is an area in the far northwest of Tasmania. It's the largest temperate rainforest in the southern hemisphere of the world. Um, it has arguably some of the greatest um, volume of documented sacred Aboriginal sites that exist in the world. And it has 60 semi-endangered species. It's It has seven out of 10 criteria for World Heritage listing. Yep. And there's only two places on planet Earth that have that, that level uh, of breadth. And you only need one to be a World Heritage listed site. Mm. So, and this is totally unprotected largely and it's 95 percent covered in mining and, and logging leases yeah so for about 15 20 years i've used photography as a tool to you know in books and exhibitions and films and you know to engage people and educate them to the significance of, of what it represents to invite them or inspire them to come and connect with it themselves to be a part of books that actually give people the tools and maps and sites to to be empowered to go there because there's a wild place and to, to people that don't know. I've also done quite a few projects with the Indigenous people and their relationship with country mm. and being their voice, um, photographically and otherwise, and, and did a beautiful film last year as well to that effect. Fantastic. So, yeah, long, long conversation there, but it's a huge part of my life, Graham, and I'm, I'm quite unashamed at, at this time in my career now, particularly with the way the world's heading, that that we all as landscape photographers have the capacity to, to be part of this conversation. And I think we already are, because just any moment where somebody stops and slows down and, and has a moment of appreciation for what exists and and the natural balance of how things, you know, have been, can be, and hopefully will be is, is a beautiful thing. Uh, and it should never be underestimated. And I think we all do that innately just through what we do, whether we're conscious of it or not. But I also feel like it is a time in the US history when we all can have a greater capacity and role and purposefulness in terms of how, how we operate the world as landscape photographers. Definitely, definitely. I've got a couple of questions based on some of what you were just talking about. How do you balance the desire to capture a, an amazing image with the need to respect and minimise your impact on the natural environment. You see a lot of places, and I know you've talked about it on uh, on, on your uh, YouTube channel with uh, Nick Monk and uh, Luke Sharkey. Uh, you know, there's places which are being degraded by the volume of people that are turning up because you know they've seen it geotagged on Instagram or whatever. How do how does a photographer go about? getting that amazing image in that incredible environment and yet minimize their impact and the impact of their followers. Yeah, it's an important conversation, Grant. We've had that many times. Uh, even before we started the show, we were very conscious that here we are with this vehicle of, you know, revealing places to the world um, and what's our, and, and we're all sort of, we all, all of us are quite connected with conservation Yep. and quite actively involved. Um, Nick has been for decades and, and Luke as well. In fact, Luke was on the last Light Collector project on the Tarkon and, and still will be, for instance, and uh, mm. for Takina as well. So for the show, for instance, in terms of just to give the overall principle, we were very clear that we we wouldn't reveal places that didn't have solid infrastructure already there that wouldn't be, um, that wouldn't have particular impact levels. Yep. 
Um, if we do personally show photos of certain areas, I personally will never say where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I might just say West Coast, Tasmania, but as far as I'd go. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, if you are in an area that has certain sensitivities, then using that as an opportunity to educate people about what those sensitivities are you know this is a place where you don't want to walk on these plants or this season of the year this is very susceptible or this is very fire prone to be careful here so you can actually use it as a platform to educate yeah uh, on some level as well and there'll be some of the principles that we use to apply and that applies both on the show and on the social media and it's it's a fine line, you know, loving to death. It, it's a conversation we'll be continuing to have. Mm. Uh, it's not going to um, it's not going to disappear. That conversation, if anything, it's probably going to become intensify as the wild places get less and less and and more overrun. Um, but I think you know, being respectful and, and sensitive and and aware and understanding of of impacts is really important. And I think there's been some mistakes by, you know, young and new photographers or, or people that were more interested in, in followers than, than, um, you know, than sustainability that, that, I mean, there's a little place literally just around the corner from my house, this beautiful little falls. Yeah. Uh, it's called secret falls. And, and that basically got destroyed in months after it was revealed it was such a sensitive place. And, and it was, it was really sad and it was a very direct, immediate and very clear impact from, from social media. Mm. So it, it is an ongoing conversation and an important one, Grant. I'm glad you brought it up. And I think all landscape photographers should should take some time to to be present to where their line is and, and how they're being responsible to the landscape that they're getting so much from. You know, to me, I get so much from, from wild places. I'm always feeling like, well, how can I get back? How can I keep that conversation with the landscape as, yeah. as a two-way street? You know, I'm, I'm getting so much joy and balance and perspective and health and well-being from this. You know, how can I how can I give back or, or, yeah. or at the very least do what I can to protect the places that have been offering so that much so much of it to me? Yeah, I think that's uh, that, that's a really great perspective, uh, Paul. You know, where you're, you're looking at what you're getting out of it, and uh, you know, taking that time to think about how you how you can give back. I guess the other question that came to mind when you were talking before, you were talking uh, about working in uh, indigenous, sorry, indigenous and uh, sacred lands. Um, what sort of do you see are the ethical considerations that landscape photographers need to keep in mind when they're, uh, you know, approaching those subjects? You know, obviously you've got to respect the the, the locals' desire. Uh, to keep a sacred place sacred and you know how do you how do you deal with those sort of situations do you you know so if you're going into a wilderness area where you know the local indigenous population has sacred areas do you get in contact with them beforehand or do you just sort of blindly go off in the bush and hope hope for the best well that, that last word is the most significant grant blind so my point being a lot of people actually have no idea and they haven't made yeah. the effort to even find that, out. That's why I'm asking the question is, you know, so, that, so many people have no idea that the places they're going are sacred or not, you know? And so that's, that's a step quite a few, there's quite a few steps further back, Grant, to, to 
actually realize, wait a minute, I haven't been here before. Um, who are the land managements, you know, trust, particularly in a lot of places in mainland Australia, there are, yeah. you can actually quite, you can get pretty clear and accessible information about that if you choose to take the time and energy and show the respect to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and a lot of people, they just don't, they're not educated enough to understand that they're there or they're, it's easier to ask for forgiveness and permission or yeah. it's far too much work and they don't want to risk not being able to go. So they'll just turn a blind eye. And, and I don't think everyone does that necessarily um, deliberately, but you know, there's, there's certainly eth ethical considerations there about who you are as a person. And, mm. and it's also reflective of your own relationship with country. And it's interesting that not being from here, they use that word here on country and, and, and I'm learning more and more and more that it's a very, very, powerful multi-layered um kind of meaning level of meaning around what that means like to the indigenous people landscape and community are, are completely interwoven they're, they're utterly almost one unit and our culture doesn't live that way yeah we dominate nature we use it as a resource and, and we prop up our lifestyles that whatever it takes at whatever cost arguably uh, and that is not anything aligned with with traditional practices for sustainable cultures through the whole of history mm. and and so it's it's not really woven into our culture so you actually have to make a very considered effort to to look in and around and beyond our own culture and that that's sort of not something that you know is necessarily taught to us in schools or it's part of our education and and so it's it's quite a big conversation so me personally like there's even places that are inappropriate to shoot from the air. There are places that are just for women's business or men's business. And, yep. and there's really powerful places like in the Kimberley, for instance, where it's almost like the land is, is so powerful. It'll let you know if you're not meant to be there yeah. and something might even happen to you if you don't respect it. Like I've seen and witnessed stories about that myself. So here it's sort of, you know, I've actually spent 20 years building up a relationship with the indigenous community and I've offered my services photographically, photographically to them for, for decades for, for basically for, for, well, for free on a Western sort of point of view. Yep. Just out of respect to that it's their country and their land and, and I'm here walking it and I'm living a lifestyle that, that benefits from the beauty and wonder of the landscape here. And that traditional custodian's not me. Uh, I'm not from here. I'm I'm from somewhere else. I've been here almost 25 years and I do spend a lot of time doing what I can to relate and protect and, and I walk country very respectfully. Mm. Um, but at the same time, it's, it's you know, I, I won't say it's not my country because I live here and I made it my home and I don't want to separate myself from my own relationship with the country, which is also valid and respectful. Um, but I, I do give overriding nod to them and it's gotten to a point now where I've built up enough trust in the community that they're happy to use me as their voice. Mm. And I get invited on projects um, where they're asking me to record country and their relationship with country to then create platforms and books and films that will then speak on their behalf. So was it last year? Yeah. Year before um, Bob Brown sponsored me to, um, to take two Aboriginal elders out onto the very, very remote West coast of Tasmania. Yep a place where you can only probably get to with, you know, four, four to eight days bushwalking there and back. Yeah, yeah. And, and we went there to create a documentary with, with the elders uh, to educate people as to the significance of their relationship with, with country. And, and that West coast of Tasmania, you cannot walk 10 meters 
without coming across a, a midden, a living site, a tool site, a hut depression, a seal hide. It is just living, breathing culture just everywhere you look for hundreds of kilometers. It's the most visible, visibly accessible access to that culture that exists in Australia. And yeah. it's been destroyed by recreational four-wheel drivers. They just go, there's nothing out there. They're just going up there to draw and have a good yeah, time. they're blind to it. They don't see it for what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's not necessarily anybody's fault because they literally don't know yeah they just never been raised no one's taught them to school the community's not aware of it they don't know what to look for and so yeah and and the middens actually become the targets for their driving because they give more grip for their tires yeah the sand and you know you you walk through middens that are like you know 25 feet deep and and the the roads cut through the heart of the middle of them and, and you're looking at tens of thousands of years of history just all around you and that's right yeah and so that that became a tool in the campaign for um, the Indigenous people's choice to create an injunction to stop recreational four-wheel drivers just going into those really super remote, very sensitive areas. They, they Parks actually opened up other areas deliberately to allow them other places and alternatives. And so it was very interesting being there and, you know, watching illegal four-wheel drive happening while we have Aboriginal elders there and literally interviewing them while they're, while they're, while they're up on the dunes behind and, being witness to the conversations when they waved some of them down and, and started having these kind of educational style conversations with, with just how you do realize what's what, what's around you and showing them tools and showing them things is uh, super powerful. And also, you know, they don't necessarily, a lot of those living sites that we found had only been recently revealed by huge dunes that have washed inland and, and revealed yeah. just, you know, ancient, ancient middens. And you could see like the size of the shellfish was like, two and a half times anything that exists today. Yeah. That yeah. was like, it was really fascinating just from a practical kind of evolutionary point of view of seeing how much that had changed as well. So, so yeah, so I've been involved and will be a lot and, and, and that goes around. So I, I opened an amazing exhibition uh, in, a, in, a, in a very different route I'll talk about later, but I actually got, when I was opening the exhibition, I got a knock on the door from, from Craig Everett, who's who's one of the great custodians for Tasmanian Aboriginal culture, and he asked me, asked me if he could, if he could come and do an, a, a full full dress regalia opening, smoking ceremony, and opening for my exhibition. Fantastic! And I'm like, when when does that happen? <laughs> when did just people here asking you? I was like, are you kidding me? And we had the premier, the current premier in Tasmania, and we had hundreds of people, and it was a super powerful way um, to use both the photography I was doing and its relationship with landscape. Uh, and people's relationship with landscape and and also indigenous culture because that they're one and the same to them and that's not uh, a concept that it's easy for us to take on board yeah 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 i want to shift a little bit uh the conversation towards some of your own work around your choices in terms of making photography a career as opposed to just a hobby when did that happen for you and what was that decision process like? I feel like uh, the universe was was knocking on my door saying, hello, buddy, this is what you're meant to be doing. And I wasn't listening for quite a while. Mm. Uh, this is probably more in the early 2000s, maybe. And and then I got to a point where, oh, I just broke my wrist. Oh, I just busted my uh, my uh, ankle as well. Uh, I think I was, I, was, I was on a wilderness therapy trip and had an accident and I, and I was snowboarding somewhere in New Zealand and had an accident and all of a sudden I couldn't do anything and I couldn't do my jobs anymore, mm. but I could still take a photo. Yeah. yeah. 
I had maybe half a year of time of, of rehabilitation and it was kind of like the universe sort of hitting the pause button as it were, just saying, well, you got a bit of time to reflect here and where to next with you. You've got to stop right now. So, and it's often when you don't stop and you just keep going, you, you just yeah. kind of going through the motions that you, you, you lose the bigger perspective sometimes because you just, yeah, and, and you, moment. you, you tend to fill your time with other things and therefore you just don't do it. That, I mean, that happened to me. I, I had, had a career in IT for many years and that, that and children and, you know, family and whatever, that absorbed all my time and there was very little time for, you know, doing anything creative. Yeah, it's, it was definitely a gift and a challenge for the universe and that, that's, well, I keep using the universe, whatever that means, life. Uh, and it was a very clear time for me to, to find the courage to step out full time basically and pull myself together and refine a few things and prepare a little bit and pretty much from there i think it was around 2008 um, i just sort of launched in and you know no business training uh which you'll find out pretty quickly you can be the greatest artist in the world but if you don't have a clue about business you know good luck uh good luck putting food on the table so i won't lie i'm more of an artist at heart than a businessman and and i'm more of a humanitarian than i am a bit concerned about making a dollar and I'm more concerned with filling my life with rich life experience than I am with security and stability. And, you know, I can do that. And it's been a very deliberate choice and a very considered choice and a very consistent choice. And I, I do that sort of most days of the week and I can do that to be fair without having mouths to feed and, and a huge mortgage somewhere. Again, that's semi-deliberate. So I'm not suggesting that people are less courageous for not doing that. In fact, if I was encouraging someone to get into photography now, I'd say maybe don't do that. I would say ease in and 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 move into a part-time model because relying on it for income is is a little bit stressful and, and maybe not the right time in the, in the um the culture of photography to do that. Arguably, yeah, yeah. Um, but well, that's a whole other conversation. But yeah, and so you know, I'm quite diverse in what I do. I as much as landscape photography was everything to me for, for decades, you know, I, through that process of wilderness therapy where I started weaving people into my images and relationship with country through my building up of relationship with indigenous people uh, as well. I started doing a lot more portrait and events sort of work. Mm-hmm. You know, I've worked as a, as an international high-end music festival photographer. I've done exhibitions on fine art nudes. I've, worked in you know corporate architectural photography i do a lot of aerial work i'm a professional drone pilot and i have and probably the biggest body of work that i that i have in the world is actually a 22 year long photo documentary portrait project on men in australia so so my my approach is very diverse i I thrive on diversity I, i love the challenge and the creative inspiration it gives me to bounce off different genres you know, I've I've done a talking landscape photography show where I can reach out to my heroes and and all people I want to learn from and get them on the show. Yep. Um, you know, I've I do a lot of exhibition work. I've learned how to print really well. Uh, I've done a lot of training in my time with people like Les Walkling, who's you know one of the greatest photographic minds in Australia. Um, you know, I run workshops all around the world. Um, I judge all around the world. Um, so I've really diversified my relationship with the wider conversation of, of visual, visual artistry and in, in different forms. And, you know, I've slowly from being self-taught, uh, I haven't sort of done a lot of workshops and training necessarily, but 
by judging around Australia and going and you know launching into different projects with different people of I've learned a lot and grown a lot through the community of photography that started building around me by mm. joining bigger organizations and, and, and organizations with higher purpose that have lots of different professionals and different mediums. And it's a very healthy realm to grow as an artist. Yeah. I think, I think you're quite right. It, that diversity and, you know, I mean, whilst I'm largely a, a landscape photographer myself and it's something that, really does float in the boat you know as you say putting food on the table you know there's there's also real estate photography and other commercial you know ventures that I'm I'm into simply because I know that you know trying to sell prints in my landscape photography is never going to put food on the table so yeah like I I've worked at being on the current um seven time professional landscape photographer of the year in Tasmania but I'm also the current and four-time commercial photographer of the year in, in, in Tasmania. Yep. So it's kind of, and that was important to me from a, you know, strategically, I guess, from a, you know, food on the table point of view to, to, to be able to present different hats. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, there, there are people that can purely survive on landscape photography. And, and I'd say that's still a huge, huge, huge part of, of what I do and it always will yeah, be. Sure. Um, and probably the beating heart of, of what I'm most passionate about. Um, but I've gained a lot and different genres have often given me uh, opportunities that, that have cross-pollinated and build up my skill sets and the way I see and the way I relate to things and what equipment I've had access to and, and what places I've been able to reach. So I don't feel like anything is really separated from others. To me, personally, they, they all kind of weave through each other quite well. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I, I guess that, that was sort of part of my point is that you build up those layers of skills that yeah. make what you are passionate about better. You know, you might be doing something over in portrait world which teaches you something about how light reacts to certain surfaces, even though exactly. they're not in the, you know, they're not in the natural landscape. But then when you go out, you're able to actually apply that to what you're looking at in the, uh, in, in nature. And I think, you know, building that skill, you know, stack, if you like, for, for want of a better term, is, is something that's very important for uh, any photographer of any genre. Yeah, agreed. Agreed on all counts. Um, and that, that's quite a good example. You go. I was going to uh, move on to judging competitions. Uh, you mentioned that you've judged a few and also entered a few and won won quite a number of awards. How important do you think it is to be entering competitions for a uh, a photographer? Yeah, it's an interesting process as an as as an evolving artist. Like, how much do you require or gain from external validation with your work? Mm. And we do that in small ways through the people around us and the feedback we get through our own social media channels and and family and friends and exhibitions. And there's lots of different ways to get that sort of feedback. And to me, a competition is only one of them, uh, or, you know, or sales in a book or, or oh, that kind sure. of thing. But I think what I personally have found quite relevant about it for me is it's given me a consistent platform to keep pushing myself. So I joined the AIPP oh 14 15 years ago and i was totally solo i knew no one and knew nothing about didn't even know other photographers even existed where i lived and all of a sudden i was in this community and that was a big part of what i've grown from but secondly 
I had this something to aim for every year to push myself to to push the envelope, to experiment, to try new things, to learn how to print, to learn more about visual communication, to learn learn more about how to weave narrative into my images, to, to, to get more aware of the kind of level of what's out there and where I sat relative to the wider kind of community and their capacity and abilities and the way they see, um, you know, to get more aware, aware of sort of artistic trends and things as well, which can be useful even as a commercial photographer. And so if, he, if I didn't have that kind of annual push to, to go somewhere, I easily could have just toddled along. And yeah. I don't think I would have evolved as quickly. I, I wouldn't have been as more critical or given as much of a critical eye over my work. I, I wouldn't have engaged in conversations with other people that to learn about visual literacy and communication within in the visual realm. Um, by watching judging, I learned a huge amount and arguably I could say being on a judging panel, I probably learned more about photography than anywhere else in my life. Yeah. Wow. So I'm sitting on a panel with, you know, four grandmasters and I'm lucky enough to be called by myself now. And when I first started, I was sitting on a panel with four grandmasters and, and I was usually the last one to speak because there's a little squeaky one on the corner and uh, the rules are, you're not allowed to say anything that hasn't already been said about an image. So I had to sit there and try and come up with, aspects of an image that hadn't been spoken to and no one had seen after four grandmasters had already spoken and i'm just going yeah. oh, god so it really got me to dig deep and you know to really listen and i literally wrote notes sometimes after what i heard the way somebody was describing an image it's like oh my god i never thought of that so i learned over a long period of time you know 15 years of judging that um you know, to look deeper, to look beyond the technical. The technical is kind of like the the knock on the door part where you, you it, kind of, it's the basics. You you've got to have a technically good image for it to be even considered. I'd I'd say, particularly in you know like a professional award structure, um, you, you need to prove you have that professional skill set first. But then, yeah. you know, and I'm sure that the conversation will naturally go there. Then, what is it that that defines an award winning image? And I actually just wrote two books with Ignacio Palacios uh, at the beginning of COVID, um, dissecting, dissecting award-winning images. So I literally had half a year <laughs> to, to dig under the surface of all these images and, and really conceptualize and put into sort of accessible literacy kind of what those qualities were. And uh, it was quite a process. And, you know, from a very simplistic point of view, it, it, the bedrocks of a great image is, the design, the visual balance, the, you know, the structure of an image, you know, being very deliberate about what's actually supporting image and what's actually distracting from it, mm -hmm. not being afraid to, to go a bit bolder and turn and simpler in your compositions, which, which require a lot of confidence um, and, and maybe a bit more vision uh, to really lean into aspects of, of narrative and storytelling and emotion and emotion can be a very subtle thing. It can be through the nuance of color. It can be with a very considered way you balance a color palette, which which actually moves people around emotionally. I, I have a background in psychology, and uh, and so I've studied brain and cognition, and and so I have a bit more of a deliberate understanding of how color influences how we relate to things and and how it influences our emotional sphere. Um, and people like Bill Henson, for instance, you know, are masters of that kind of thing. They they weave in unconscious um, misdirects with with the, the color tones and shadows are actually the opposite of what they should be if you go in really close. But from yeah. far back, you can't tell. So your brain's got this sense of dissonance and discord and unrest, and you can't tell why. 
Mm. He's literally using just subtle micro nuances of oppositional colors, like warm and cool tones and in, in, in unexpected places to, to, to weave that through his images in really subtle ways. So, so you can be very cognitive about it, or you can be very sort of intuitive about it. Yeah. And, and I feel like, I guess, you know, when you see a lot of images from judging, you know, there, there's an element of originality that you're looking for in terms of the freshness of perspective and, and a different kind of a different way something's been seen or looked at that you don't see from before. And homage is, is welcome and appreciated if it's done well. Homage being, you know, a reference to other sort of artworks. When we do our judge training, we're often um, encouraged to look at other mediums, um, okay. film, video, um, you know, painting, sculpture, even um, to just sort of keep wider conversations of, of, of what, what we can relate to in, in the visual realm and, and what reaches and what touches people and what, what communicates beyond the obvious, what asks questions of you, what challenges it, you know, is it an image that I'm going to remember forever? Is it touched a chord in me? And, and yes, it's subjective. Like certain images will just hit a chord in someone that, that hits a life experience that they've had or, or a particular style or genre of work that really sings to them on a deeper level or, homage to an artist that that you might not even be aware of that your work represents like it's 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 a little bit hit and miss yeah i think we're in the top 20 percent. it's kind of anyone's game from there yeah uh, in terms of what rises to the top and and that will probably always be the case because it's artists judging art essentially um so having a very considered panel makes a big difference you know mixing genres mixing levels of experience uh, even getting people that are industry experts that aren't necessarily photographers and certain um subjects really helps yeah, yeah, definitely. And people like the NZIPP and the WPPI and the AOPP, which I've judged all of which many times, are very deeply considered about their judging process and the training that the judges have and and the lineation and, and the design of the actual panel that's on at the time. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's a roll of the dice. Uh, it's putting skin in the game. There's a lot of cur- courage and vulnerability in entering contests and putting your work out there publicly. Yep. And I don't think anyone is is immune to that. No, uh, and so that that skin of the game, I think, is is the very thing that drives you a little bit further, or to go a little bit farther, or to try something different, or or to push the boundaries a little bit more. You know, there's nothing like being judged by your peers in in any sort of genre of in the world, and that that's that has a bit of an emotive quality to it. When I mean, you're in a judging room live, it's it can be pretty intense. I can tell you. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then when you've got cameras on you and it's streamed live around the world and you know people are going to be like rewinding everything you say <laughs> and <laughs> dissecting it, it's like, oh, no pressure. Yeah. Um, but it grown hugely and and I think it's important to be a little bit discerning and realistic about what contest you enter because they have different cultures and different styles of photography that rise to the top. Some are very, you know, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for the National Landscape Photography Awards, which have come out in the last few years. Uh, with Matt Payne and Tim Parkin and and those sort of guys and yep. and it's very clean imagery with you know minimal post production and it's kind of to me letting nature be the hero again and you're not having to compete with you know ten million hours of of, of refined Photoshop work from some absolute graphic artist expert that I wouldn't have a clue how to do myself yeah yeah um, which I do appreciate and I have judged many many times and and I, and I actually greatly respect in its own in its own realm. And as a judge, you've got to put your own biases aside um, to, to be a successful judge anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so 
have a look at the competitions, look at the style of work that's in there. Is it really the ethics and values of what they stand for? Something you want to support as well, because your money is going towards supporting what who they are and what they stand for as well. Um, you know, there's some competitions that feel a little bit like, well, they're not really offering any prizes or any feedback. It just feels a little bit like they're it's a business plan more than more than something back to the community. Whereas NLPA, like that's year-long feedback all year round off their own bat. Um, very, very uh, accessible pricing structure, uh, wonderful prizes, um, excellent feedback, beautiful books, um, engaged YouTube panels reflecting on images. And they spend the whole year relating and sharing images that didn't win the prizes. Yeah. yeah. All year round. It's brilliant. Huge yeah. commitment from those guys. Uh, we've Absolutely. had them on the show a few times because we have so much respect for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so local can be, I mean, it's the best place to start is local camera clubs by far. And it's a wonderful platform to just push you every time. All right, I will go and print something up for the first time, or I'll go to somebody else and get some feedback with these 10 images and try to whittle it down to four, or I'll challenge myself to work on the theme for this month, which gets me thinking in a way I otherwise wouldn't apply myself. So they're all avenues for growth, but because there's skin of the game and, and you may not like the feedback, you can, can get a bit banged around by the process if, if you have a bit too much sort of, ego on the way and yeah. which we all do we're artists and let's not kid ourselves it's very human well you know you, you spend hours out there in the field and hours in the editing studio and it's your baby and you know nobody likes their baby oh. being criticized do they? oh you know it so well grant it's but it's funny you've got to remember and this is where it gets tricky those judges are going to have no idea how much blood sweat and tears exactly yeah. and they'll never know and it's actually not relevant um, to oh. the conversation about the image, even though it is to you, yeah, and that's where it can get a little bit cold. The colder side of judging can come in. It's like they don't know. I don't. I wouldn't say they don't care, but at the same time, it's not part of the conversation. Well, when but, when when you've got you know two or three thousand entries in a in a competition, it can be you know, and and some of the bigger ones have, have got up with the ten thousand. You know, you haven't got the time to care that much about it. I guess in a in a judging panel. To say, all right, well, you know, it, it comes down to, do I like this enough to put it up into the next round of judging or not? You know, and you, you start to see that culling process become, you know, fairly brutal. I'd, I'd say. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've judged the uh, international um, panoramic awards, and I think I've got four and a half thousand images to judge. So it's, kind <laughs> of like, it's kind of like, okay, where are we go? Where are we going to start? And <laughs> You know, one of the ways that we create a level playing field is is we'll do a walkthrough of all the images first, so yeah. you get a sense of the of the of a, you'll get a scale of reference, mm. uh, which I think is an important technique. Um, and they do that a lot in in the in the national on the national awards level. And I do that personally when I do a lot of the I just judge the um, I think top emerging photography of the year awards. So I think maybe the tenth eleventh time just a week or two ago, and, and I just sit down the night before and I do a huge run through and I don't judge anything. Yeah. And I let them sit in my subconscious overnight. And it's funny when I wake up, you know, certain images will rise to the fore a little bit or or reinforce themselves or or you know, because allowing an image a little bit of time to assimilate with you can can allow more unconscious sort of elements of the image to 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 rise to the fore. Yeah, definitely. Whereas in that live judging process, you've got 60 seconds. Yeah. And that's it. And you have to hope. You know, and the and the artist has to hope, especially that if you've got some more subtle or hidden elements or or um, 
uh, that, that that need a little bit of time and don't have a screaming loud voice but are still very present that the judges have enough space and capacity to relate to that and sometimes it's a little bit quick you know I, I won't lie over 15 years there's still two or three where I'm like damn it I, I didn't see that yeah uh, that's what a panel's for because somebody else might point it out well, to you this, this is it yeah and uh, I think the the diversity of the panel and the panel's views and you know, not not just their skills and, and and so forth but their their own sort of everyone has their own personal biases and you know some people are like a a calmer uh you know more serene image other people like something that's more impactful and you you, you end up I guess getting that blend of the all, all of the voices that are on the panel well, I think it's different. Like there's a lot of, most of the competitions are online and there's not necessarily any interaction between the judges at all. Yeah. yeah. And what I feel like are the most beneficial competitions to engage with from an educational point of view, it's the live ones. Hmm. The IPP, the WPI and, and what was the IPP, which they've now evolved and they've got the Australian Photographic Prize, which I, I judged last year and I was really happy to support. And that's a lot of the similar kind of caliber and level and style of live judging. Um, and when you have a panel of live judges that are ready and willing and capable of challenging each other live, it's incredible the kind of conversations and knowledge that can come out of those. Yeah, yeah. That's where I've probably learned the most in the last 10 or 15 years is, you know, having straight out, you know, uh, debates and arguments with photographers about live images, you know, in the moment um, with that intensity of, of environment and that intent and purposefulness around it and a very considered judging process around it. It's super powerful. It's an incredible resource for, for all of us. And I know the NZIPP will be coming up again soon. They've, they've committed, as I always have for years, to doing a live recorded process so you can actually access those. Yeah, right. Very, very sadly, when the IPP went down, the the decade or more of recorded events are now no longer accessible, is my understanding. Which to oh, me wow. is, to me, is one of the great modern resources in Australian photography. To be honest, absolutely. Um, simple as that that, that. that blows me away that that's that's disappeared. But it's well, I mean, actually, I mean, literally, been the recorded judging process specifically, <laughs> and then there's a whole other conversation about the industry impact from that organization no longer being there as well. That's, that's, mm. that's more again, but I couldn't think of a more tangible, accessible, modern resource that are, I could say you learn more from than that live judging process Yeah, and reliving and watching that. And, and you'll find that if you're brave enough to have a go yourself, you pay way more attention and you're way more focused and you're probably going to learn more. Yeah. Um, so you're yeah. more invested in it. And, Absolutely. um, you're not just playing along the side while you're doing something else. You're actually like, whoa, you know, I'm right here. And yeah. and it's pretty damn exciting. So so I've 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 judged every awards in Australia multiple times around every state because I just I just love that process so much. Yeah. yeah. And on a personal note, I've made friends around the country. I've got places to stay around the country. I've made mentors, I've started projects, I've borrowed equipment, I've you know, done business referrals. It's been a huge investment in my career, even though the judging itself is completely unpaid. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's a love it's a love thing to do. But over all those years, it's I did a trip around Australia last year, year before, like a like a post COVID run around. I just could I was going insane, and I stayed with photographers and flew with photographers all around Australia and every state. And I don't think I even stayed in a hotel once and like on a six week wow. trip. Yeah. That's just from people I'd met going around judging. So you know. The investment sort of comes back in different ways, shall we say? 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. There was that case recently where an AI-generated image won a competition. Admittedly, it wasn't any great shakes as a competition. I think it was a fairly regularly held weekly, you know, sort of best photo sort of thing. Um, and the artist uh, apparently entered it to sort of prove a point rather than anything else. Do you see AI as being a threat to that photography judging and the, you know, the impact on, uh, I, I guess, being able to even blending a real photo with AI elements, etc. Et Do you see that becoming something that's going to be more prevalent and harder to detect and harder to become sort of part of that judging process? Yes and no. Like there's already for the major competitions, there's already uh, structures in place to to get around that. So, uh, you know, there was some pretty big controversy like five ish years ago, where five or six years ago, where an Australian photographer had done, she, who was a really high composite photographer, and her work's incredible to be honest. And to be honest, I don't, I'm not quite sure why she did it because her work was already so amazing. But yeah, yeah. She, she broke the rules by including a lot of clip art in her images because the rule was you had to physically photograph everything yourself. But she might have had 100 elements in a single photograph, so it probably just saved her a lot of time. And but even though she was physically way more than capable to do it herself, just time-wise, I might have come in and she yeah. got caught out and that rippled through a lot of competitions around the world that she'd entered for many years. And that did have a very, very big ruffle around the international contest circuit. And it basically meant that most competitions of a certain caliber will require raw files for their winners at the very least. Yep. It may be an issue, I think, if they don't make it to the winner's circle, will they do all right? If they haven't done the raw vetting on on the every single image, which is a huge, huge, um, very significant undertaking to do, especially if you've got thousands of images. Absolutely. So maybe, but I don't think the ones that get to the top will get away with that. I think a lot of the a lot of the competitions have have raw file vetting, and that's basically to discourage people from doing it in the first place. But it's also a very clear avenue to realize when images have been created. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think there's yet capacity to, to get around that. Um, and so I, I think it might move into its own realm where they'll actually start AI competitions themselves. Oh, I, I don't, I don't doubt that. I think there, there are already AI competitions or if not that composite competitions uh, already in place. Where I say, I mean, that's a very, emotionally evocative word that you use threat but where i might relate it to a little bit that way is as a working professional yeah as a working commercial professional photographer like already architectural and car photography things like that are pretty much already gone anyway to yeah. cgi and other aspects and to see portraiture work and, and other sorts of things moving into that realm is like oh my goodness what's it what's it going to mean to me as a working photographer mm-hmm. so it's almost sort of got me thinking a little bit more about moving back into my skill sets and portraiture and event work and music and and even wedding work i do i, I don't advertise weddings i never have but I, I i don't get shy if somebody in california asks me to come over and shoot their wedding sure. <laughs> I, I do i do a bunch of international weddings maybe a few a year and i love it and people that i love or care about as well and, I, and i'm pretty good at it but it's sort of i'm trying to think geez do i need to be a little bit more discerning in my future about leading leading my um I guess um, 
commercial sort of work in a direction that 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 is going to remain viable in and around the future of AI. Mm, mm. I, I think it's happening way too fast for us to see where it's going and how it's going to impact things. Uh, Luke and I have had a number of discussions that we need to have multiple panel sessions this year on the Talking Landscape Photography Show about it because I think it's the most significant element of photography that exists in the world right now in the upcoming yeah, future. Yeah. It's the most controversial and sort of unknown and potentially impactful uh, thing that's reached the photography world since the invention of digital photography uh, in the first place. Definitely. So yeah. it's, yeah, it's, it's a little bit unfathomable for me at the moment, how far it's going to go and yeah. how rapidly the feedback loop on those mechanisms of, of algorithms are increasing to, you know, first, first ones are, oh, the hands are funny or they don't do eyes right. Next thing you know, they fix that, they fix that, they fix that. It's, it's just insane. And, and some of my photographic friends have been making a point of doing thematic projects deliberately and, and getting them as close as possible to what they physically could have photographed to almost fool people and, and just saying, oh, by the way, this is AI and just freaking people out. So, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Grant? Well, in, in terms of where it's going, as you say, I, I think it's moving really fast. I think it'll continue to move fast. And to be honest, uh, I think it will probably move much faster as time goes on as well, which may seem strange, but I just think the way that the code can be built and then modified and remodified learning based off what the system is actually seeing and, you know, what it's being asked to do, it will actually evolve far faster than anything, you know, a set of human programmers could actually sit down and, and type in, you know. Uh, so I think that side of things is going to evolve very quickly. But in terms of, you know, uh, commercial work, I do see some threats. You know, you know uh, I, I was talking to somebody the other, the other week about the fact that a, uh, you know, creative director now could just simply type in a few words and get their product shot without having to go and hire a model, hire a location, go through all the you know, bibs and bobs that go along with actually creating a, a commercial shoot. Uh, and then they could then hone and change and adjust the campaign. And to be honest, I can see a situation in the advertising world, having had a little bit to do with that in the past, mm -hmm. that there will be greater automation in that and it will actually adjust the imagery and uh, so forth based on audience reactions. And that'll be down to the number of eyeballs, where the eyeballs are tracking on the screen, what the, uh, how long the eyeballs are looking at particular areas on the screen and various elements will actually change and evolve through a campaign uh, automatically without any human intervention. So I, wow. I can see a wow. that kind of, kind of thing is where it will, it will not necessarily end up because I don't think that's an end state. I think that's a, a progression that will continue. Um, the challenge for commercial photographers, obviously, is how do you, you know, adjust your business model when that threat is sitting there on your doorstep? And one way of doing it is you could become very good at being an AI 
creative developer, if you like, for one of a better term. Um, There'll be a few new buzzwords, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> find that role. I think for me, from an artistic and purely photographic point of view, Grant, there's a lot of murky ethics floating around. And... Oh, absolutely. And the, the, it's to, to me, it's that ethical, is this real, is this synthetic, is going to be where there's going to be a lot of, lot of argument, a lot of conversation because... And copyright and, and artistic integrity is exactly yeah right it, it at the part of that because very, very this, these algorithms are, are basically reaching into and following just a huge variety of work that already exists correct and that's how they're creating from so there's actually a piece of a lot of people's work inside all of these and and, and references to it all so what does that mean for um for copyright infringement and well one one of the one of the really challenging things i think will be where an artist and that could be any kind of visual artist uh except my well even maybe sculpture because i can see this moving into 3d printing as well you know so what <laughs> watch out for that space too but um i could i could see or, or there is already the issue that somebody could say all right well i'm I want to create an image of uh, Tasmanian landscape that's in the style of Paul Holland. And therefore, I create an image through typing a few words and it looks a hell of a lot like what you're doing. Oh, my God. You're always going to be curious to try that now. So it's like, what's it going to come up with? I'm a little bit curious. Well, that, that's the thing. I mean, you don't know what is it. And the, 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 the other thing ethically, I think, that a lot of people don't look at is... Uh, you know, taking credit for what's effectively a machine doing all the work or a set of programmers that did the original kickoff of that, that AI process, it's really their work as far as I'm well, Or the artist that they're referencing. Well, the, yes, and the, the artist that they're place. referencing and the, and the, the works that are being uh, referenced to actually provide the the, the, the structure for, on, on which the synthetic images are, are being created. So I think there's there's a lot of murk around that ethical question. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't take any credit. If I, if I go and use Midjourney version 5 today and created an image, I'd say, yes, well, the, the machine created an image. Um, all I've done is type some words, you know. <laughs> So, for, and yes, I might be very clever about how I've done that, and yes, I might choose that word. And where it becomes murkier is okay. Well, I pull that image down, and I then use Photoshop, and I use my own skills to hone it, refine it, and and alter it, and even add to it. Then that becomes partly my work, partly the machine's work. So you know, there, there's a lot of I, I think there's a lot of murkiness to you know plow through there. That's I don't know that there's a lot of conversations going on around it yet. I think there should be, particularly, uh, I guess, in the the, the more, uh, I guess, um, visual arts community as opposed to just photography, because I don't think it just affects photography. It affects all visual arts, you know, artists, because, you know, you could say, all right, we'll do it in the style of Rembrandt or, you know, some other contemporary famous painter and it'll give you something that looks a bit like a Rembrandt or whoever it is that you've referenced, you know. Watch this space. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting. And I, as I said, 
I think it'll evolve a lot quicker than people are uh, expecting it to, and it will continue to speed up. I don't think, I don't think it's going to slow down. Uh, yeah, I, I, I know it's a bit of a, a joke, you know. I, I, I for one, uh, you know, um, praise our uh, our robot overlords. Well, I, I think that day could be coming. You know? <laughs> oh God. No, no comment on robot overlords. <laughs> anyway, let, let's get back to photography, real photography, and talk a little bit about uh, how where you live influences how you shoot. I know it influences what you shoot because it's obviously the Tasmanian wilderness that gets you going. Does it influence how you shoot in any way? Yeah, I, I feel like, what I spoke of earlier exactly overlaid to that question. So how I shoot is heavily influenced by the culture of landscape photography that exists here in Tasmania. So yeah, I literally had Grant Dixon sitting in my house having a cup of tea just, just five minutes before I came on with you, actually one minute before. <laughs> and, um, and being around people like that and a culture like that and the intentionality with how and why they shoot the way they do and the ethical... I guess purposefulness of how they try and let the landscape be the hero rather than the artist mm. uh, is still very woven into photography here. And I remember if Peter doesn't mind me using an example, Peter Eastway came and did a photo of Cradle Mountain and he stretched the mountain in it. Yep. He liked to look better. And you should have seen the uproar <laughs> went around from the local Tasmanian photographers. You wouldn't believe it. And, you know, Peter's just being the artist that he is. And, and that's more of a reflection of the Tasmanian culture than it is about Peter. Sure. Um, that, that's an example of how where I live shapes kind of the style of work that I, I, I produce. It's probably kept my work far away from the composite sort of realm personally uh, and a lot more on a, on a focusing on camera craft sort of level. Yep. And, and I feel like the younger generations are learning post-production before or even at the cost of actual traditional camera craft mm, mm. and as much as you could say that's a bad thing i think that's just how it is and it's maybe even too late to complain about that but um but it's it's something to be present and aware to uh, in terms of where, how a, the newer generation is relating to to their capacity and their technique and style of, of approaching photography in general um so that would be a really simple way to say why here i think also it's a very elemental place living here. It changes every day. It can snow. It would literally the snow on the mountain four days ago, straight out my window and in the middle of summer. So that impacts the fact and that nature rules here. Yeah. I don't yeah. go out and put myself on nature. I go out and I try and survive it. I try and be ready for anything because I really don't know on any given day of the week or any time of the year what's going to be thrown at me. Even when I plan a trip and look at the weather, if it's a multi-day trip, good luck knowing what's going to happen on day three. You just can't tell in Tasmania. So that, yeah. that shapes, I guess, the level of preparedness and the level of flexibility that I have in terms of what I'm going out to try and shoot. And maybe maybe it introduces a bit of fluidity as well. I don't get too caught up in exact outcomes because it's rare that everything will line up perfectly just how you want it. You, you need to be able to sort of roll with the punches, as it were, with, with, with what nature offers down here. And, yeah, right. And I personally think that's a good thing. And I think it's also uh, from a, from a very global point of view, it's a good thing to relate to the natural world as being the boss, which we don't kind of do that much when you live in a city and, and mm -hmm. work in a car and an air conditioned office and 
drive back on a motorway and live in an apartment block. The natural world isn't a big part of your life. And so no wonder you're not really thinking about it that much. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Tassie doesn't let you do that. It's like, it'll let you know pretty quickly um, if you're getting off the bandwagon with uh, it, it being the boss here. And even when you look at the way a city like Hobart that I live in is, I live on the side of a mountain. Yeah. So, so that shapes how I live and that at any time of the year I can go up and I can get snow and I can, be in complete alpine conditions and I can be trying to stand up 110 kilometer hour winds and I can <laughs> experience what it's like to be in the Arctic and, and I can see huge ranges and flora and, and um, I've got wildlife running through the back of my property, you know, which literally every day. Um, so where I live is a, is a huge shaping force. I'm quite aware if, if somebody's having a smoke, I might be a little bit cheeky sometimes and say, guess what's on the other side of that smoke? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, and I look over there and I say, oh, the cleanest air in the world. <laughs> and it literally is it is the cleanest air on planet earth and the west coast of tasmania if you stand in the middle of it and look west it's the largest longest untracked piece of of vision on the planet hmm. you literally if you followed a straight line you'd go past south america all the way to africa yeah so right. it's the largest sort of untracked stretch of ocean in the world and that's why it gets so hammered by whatever comes along and why it doesn't have its own landmass to, to dictate and change the, the weather systems that much and so it sort of requires you to to take a step back and just to be ready to accommodate whatever comes as opposed to putting your own will on the landscape yeah fantastic what's your most memorable phot- photographic experience oh i'll let you know when the book comes out there my friend <laughs> um i would not know how to answer that in a million years i i could answer that in an obtuse sort of way so i created an image in about 2007 that I didn't even remember that I created. And when I was entering my very first competition in the IPP, mm. um, I didn't know what I was doing, didn't know how to print, didn't know anything. And I, and I had a couple of friends on my shoulder and I said, Oh, and I was just run, running through the random images. I said, Oh, what about that one? And I was like, really, that one is a bit weird. And I thought, and I didn't know any better. So I chucked it in and it won the highest scoring print in Tasmania. And it went on to almost win the highest going print in Australia, actually, uh, that year. It was winning the first two and a half days. And then, God bless them, a lovely wedding photograph beat me uh, <laughs> to get wedding photograph, get photograph of the year. But it changed my career. And it was actually a photograph that I took at the Burning Man Festival in the Nevada desert. Okay. Yep. And it was a very, very Mad Max-like, um, deep sort of black, golden silhouette of an art structure out in the open expanse of desert. Mm. And it had all these different intricate little micro stories of, of people and things going on and around it. It looked like nothing you'd come across in everyday life whatsoever. And it was a very deeply memorable photograph to a lot of people. And the fact that I find it really interesting that I actually can't remember taking that photograph. I don't think I slept for three days. Yeah, wow. Stumbling around trying to find my way back from this crazy uh, like life experience that Burning Man is. Look it up if you don't know much about it. It's hard to describe and put into words. It's a seven-day leave no trace festival yep. with no money involved. Um, you're in the middle of the desert in the hottest month of the year. There's no food, there's no water. It's a survival experience to some extent. Uh, you know, it's 30, 70 degrees during the day and windstorms coming through at 60, hundred kilometers an hour blowing camps apart. It's, it's just, and at nighttime it turns into this incredible event uh, that you can't even put into words. Yeah, and a lot of crazy stuff going on. Yeah, but the photograph, it's incredible. Like it really yeah. is. It's like Mad Max on steroids. And and so I guess that's an interesting story that that one of my most, most powerful photographs in my career, I don't actually remember taking. 
because I was so deeply immersed in being there, it almost didn't matter. And uh, I, I think I didn't even know what I was doing back in those days, and I shot it as a JPEG too, which didn't probably didn't, didn't help. But it's, but it was so impactful just by its nature and its structure, and and its um, its kind of spontaneous kind of sense of point of difference that it really stood out. And you know, it opened a lot of doors for me. Like people were literally, I remember going up there and. Um, I was so scared. I went up to the Sydney to the big national AIPP awards, didn't know anybody. And I was so nervous to go in there. I actually walked around the block for like two and a half hours before I even went in. And when I went in, the one guy that I knew, his name was Alan Moyle. And, mm. and I only knew him a little bit. And he said, he looked at me funny and he said, follow me. And he walked me into the room and, and he looked up on the wall and said, that's your image, isn't it? And I said, yeah, yeah. He said, well, that's currently the highest scoring image in Australia. And I just, I just, I was just about feeling, I just broke down into tears. I was like, you're kidding me like this. Yeah. And all these people came around and like, who's this guy and what's going on here? And next thing you know, I'm out to dinner with Christian Fletcher and Tony Hewitt and all these guys I never even heard of and didn't know who they were. So it kind of just put me on this radar and, and opened up this conversation with a community who were curious who this newcomer was. And having never been around other photographers till, till literally that year, it was, it was a game changer for me. So it's funny how a single photograph in your life can can sometimes make such a difference. Yeah, yeah. It might not be in an expected way. It might not even be a planned photograph. Right place, right time, right intent, and and a lucky audience. You know, and it, it's it's like that in modern days with with social media. You can just create one image, and in days it can be a worldwide sensation. Like when was that possible in film days? Good luck with that. Yeah, that's right. Whereas any kid with a smartphone, that that could possibly be the case. And I literally had that conversation last week. I work uh, with schools um, doing wilderness therapy camps using photography as a medium for people, for them to connect with their country and and to to take ownership of the kind of conversations they want to have with their relationship with it and and to share that with the world through imagery. Um, and all of them only have phones. Not a single one of them has a camera, even on a three, four-day wilderness trip nobody even knows what a dslr is so i've just got to lean into the reality of what is and that's a little bit challenging at times but it's but it's also rolling with the times with the younger generation yeah fantastic what about horror stories have you got any of those oh seriously you could do a whole show grant like (laughs) i'm quite i'm quite i'm a little bit renowned for my horror stories mate to be honest um to sum up it too really quickly uh I went to Yellowstone, no, Yosemite National Park. I just got a one-way ticket to America. Uh, my mother's actually from Memphis, Tennessee. My, my sister was in San Fran getting married, and and I just decided, I packed everything up and just got a one-way ticket. Said, right, I'm going to go embrace my American heritage and have a good look around. And the first thing I did was go to Yosemite. And I remember the first night I got there, I was camping around the car park, and suddenly at one in the morning, sure, sure, you got to move your tent right now. I was like, what? It's one o'clock in the morning. Who's this guy? And so I pack up my tent and I've got to push it over a bridge. The next thing you know, I hear this huge gunshot coming around the valley. And it was summer, it was a really old, aggressive bear that was that was that was starving, it was coming down out of the country and it had come in down five or six times and they worried it was going to eat someone. So that was my first taste of bears. And I I had to wait to go back country because I didn't realize I'd never been somewhere you had to have permits and had to wait days to go for a bushwalk. I was like, this is like 2007. I was like, you're kidding me, mate. Yep. I got a two-day permit and, of course, I ended up being there, out there for about nine days because, like, once I'm out there, what are they going to do about it? 
but I only had a few days worth of food, so I was running around um, borrowing music bars on people for taking photos. <laughs> and anyway, I ended up climbing Half Dome and coming back down, and then I sort of did a little bit sneaky, which I probably shouldn't say online, but I, I, rec- I, I camped somewhere on a rock ledge up high, which you're probably not meant to do. I don't think I knew that at the time, but I know now you're not. And I put all my food out in a way uh, from me and I went to sleep, but I was a bit nervous because um, I was out alone. I was up pretty high and sure enough, about midnight, I started hearing this crunching and rustling and I was like, yeah. oh, and I just carefully opened the door and I saw this massive silhouette of this huge bear. And I'm like, oh my God, nobody knows I'm here. I've got no phone. I'm up here on my own. Crawl back into my tent and then it came right up and it's face started pressing into the side of my tent straight into my face sniffing around i'm like oh my god and then it came around and started coming inside my tent and i'm like this is getting really serious and then it grabbed my bag and then i realized wait a minute that's my camera bag stuff that it's not taking my camera (laughs) gear that's not insured and I just manned up and I got my torch and I got my walking stick and I just ripped open the door and just went and right in his face. And it just went and it ran off with my camera bag and I chased it <laughs> while I had the upper hand. This is the stupidest thing I've probably ever done. So I was chasing this bear through the bush and then it, it's my camera bags just bouncing along and then it ends up getting the, the bag caught in a tree, a little, a little shrub down the bottom. It's just going and then it rips off the bottom of the bag and it runs off. Wow. And, I kept that camera bag for about three years without holding it so I could tell a story. <laughs> but I started losing way too much uh, stuff out of the hole. So I ended up getting it repaired. Good uh, <laughs> old Kiwi backpack. So it's one, one of many, Grant, one of many. Fantastic. Thank you for that. How do you push through creative blocks and overcome challenges in your photography? And what sort of things do you do to stay inspired and engaged? To be honest, I, I really have them. Um, mm. I love what yeah. I do so much. It, it's, it just weaves through everything. Um, that being said, I'm quite conscious about that. And I think it's because I've been conscious about that, I haven't found myself in a position where I get stuck. So I've made a lot of deliberate choices in my life where I generally only work for people and do things that I find meaningful and purposeful and are somehow making the world a better place. That That's my overriding motto. Yeah. If it's not somehow you know, making the word a better place. And when I started doing it, then why am I doing this? Um, so you won't find me, you know, doing a studio shoot with Coke bottles or something like that, but you will find me, you know, getting a bag of rice and working on a humanitarian project somewhere for sure. because I believe in what they're doing. And that's, I'm in that unique position to do that. So I guess meaningfulness and purpose in your work and why you're doing what you're doing and who you're engaging with in the wider community is, is a really key aspect when you get a bit stuck because uh, if it's just for you and just a pat on the back in your own ego, then that can get pretty old pretty fast and you can get pretty caught up in your need for external validation around that. Whereas if you're working for a project that's bigger than you, that doesn't really happen. Yeah. Um, yeah. My other, I guess my other deliberateness around keeping fresh is, is the variety and the scope of, of the breadth of genres that I engage with. Um, as I said earlier in the show, that really does keep you fresh. It keeps you on edge. It keeps the cross-pollination of ideas and techniques weaving across different things. I'm not afraid to have a go at new things. Being a part of a wider community of photographers has made a huge difference. You know, being a part of the Light Collective has, has been a massive influence. 
uh, I'm running my Talking Long Landscape Photography Show and reaching out to my heroes and, and people in the world that I really want to learn from and are inspired by, um, you know, actively engaging in competitions and pushing myself, keeps things fresh. Sometimes I'm not in that space and I force myself to do it. Yep. Um, and that's partly, that it can be a good thing because um, often it can be very easy to go, oh, it's all too hard and, and not bother. Um, but if you're committing to something, whether you want to or not, you, you, you find yourself grow in surprising ways. So that, that'll be a few techniques, Grant. Okay, cool. What do you like to do when you're not out shooting? Well, I'm an outdoorsman. Um, I've been riding waves since I was seven years old. I was a South Island champion in 1993 or something. I, um, I mountain bike. I climb a little bit. I cave a little bit. I sea kite quite a lot. I, um, I read quite a bit. I love films. I love music. I love good food. Um, I love travel. Travel would be one of the great sort of loves of my life. And it, it's yeah. been quite interesting to, you know, be restricted internationally. And, and now I find it, you know, the conversation is becoming a little bit more difficult. You know, my next trip is Svalbard in Iceland and in between that I literally are just planning right now and today and this morning and last night, actually. And it's sort of I'm very conscious of that carbon footprint, mate. And it's yeah. I'm struggling yeah. with it a little bit. And, and, and it's sort of like, well, you know, how can I be a part of a conversation around climate change or, or support a project by doing it? Like, it's very rarely that I'll, I'll, I'll take on something, you know, like I do a lot of aerial photography, but if you look at what I've done with it, you know, so much of it is, is around conservation focus and on huge exhibitions on like ones called altered lands where I've researched and photographed a lot of the big sort of mining and resource extraction processes in Australia and brought them to light. So, so yes, I'm in a small plane using fuel, but at the same time, I'm, I'm bringing awareness to the masses about the impact of, of fossil fuel extraction in the first place. So it's a bit of a, a bit of a come forth and come back sort of thing. So yeah, yeah. yeah, I love people. I love people watching. I just sort of love life, mate, to be honest. And, and I think living in a place like Tasmania where I'm not sort of caught up in a rat race as it were, I have this breathing room and space to, to just be to some extent. I'm not just constantly just trying to make enough money to survive. Mm. Uh, that's a very deliberate choice for me and it gives space and room for other things in my life to have a place. I'm not just exhausted at the end of the day, just getting out working for the man. Um, yeah, yeah. But I may not sort of be aligned with in terms of my values and ethics. And, and I think my, you know, my moral compass is pretty strong. And as much as that can be a bit of a principal place to come from, it can really help your well-being as well when you're doing things that are well aligned with your with values and your ethics, because things just sit well and, and they sit easily and they feel good. Yeah, yeah. And I think your your working environment, if you're not aware of it already, is probably what arguably the biggest impact on your mental health totally. on, on day-to-day life. And if you're in a toxic work environment, you've got to have a pretty good look at what's keeping you there. And as much as it might be putting food on the table, it might be eating away at other other aspects of your well-being that are going to come back and bite you either soon or later in life. So so I'm quite aware of those sort of things. I have been from a young age. So so I've lived a very deliberate life in terms of um, aligning with things that I feel are very meaningful and purposeful and um, supportive of good things happening in the world. And that, that compass has led me to some amazing places. You, you might not want my retirement plan, but you probably would want my memory banks. Fair enough. <laughs> Um, I've only got a couple more questions for you. Are there any photographers out there you think I should uh, have on the podcast? I know you've probably got a long list. I've already got a long list. Just give me a couple. David Thompson. Yep. 
uh, from the US. In fact, I just spent two and a half hours on the phone with them last night, actually, um, yeah. helping 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 uh, plan my the Iceland part of my trip. Uh, I haven't heard much from Mark Mark Animus. Um, I, I feel like even though his work is very not fantastical, but it's it has that kind of dreamlike sort of aspect to it that it, that almost transcends reality to me. I find it incredibly artfully done, and the fact that he's so committed to getting to really pretty extreme remote places I, I have a huge admiration for um maybe someone like rob blakers who, who whose life is dedicated to conservation-based photography and yeah. and he's literally 40 50 years of his life or at least 45 is is has been purely sort of runner down run along those sort of lines um i sort of think tim parkin's an amazing man yeah. as well as a great photographer and his understanding of the wider aspects of photography in the industry, his commitment to traditional camera craft, as well as his open-mindedness to the future photography and his finger on the pulse across so much of what's happening around the world is, is pretty exceptional. And I, and I really dearly love his commitment to the NLPA sort of values and ethics and ethos around that whole competition and what it stands for. Um, there, there are a few that come to mind in a, on a very, very short space of time. Fantastic. Thanks for that. Well, my last question is uh, one that I've been trying to get to the bottom of right throughout the uh, the whole series of this podcast. Do you like pineapple on pizza? I wouldn't go without it, mate. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't know how people, I don't know what the argument is or what's wrong with people. <laughs> the more the better. Put half a can on there, mate. Good on you. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't expecting that one. <laughs> No, I know. That's that's why it's thrown in. <laughs> great, great way to finish. All right. Well, thanks very much for taking the time to talk to me, Paul. Where can people find your work? Uh, I have a very old functioning website called paulholland.com, so don't look too deep. But if you want to reference some of my older work, that's a, that's a pretty good starting point. My um, Instagram at paulholland is very fresh and modern, but it's very, very focused on fine art uh, landscape um aerial photography in particular it's it's a bit of a boutique sort of site but it's that is easily one of my favorite genres and we didn't even really talk about that much on the show but it's probably out of all the genres of landscape photography it'd be one i'm probably most passionate about to be honest and sure. you'll get a real sense of of maybe why and in australia we're living in one of the greatest countries in the world for aerial photography by far totally yeah. all the places i've been in the world it's 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 right up there and we have a lot of the greatest we're, aerial photographers in the world as well and i spent a lot of time sort of bouncing off them and traveling with them and shooting with them as well it's 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 a it's a big beautiful rich part of my life um i'm reasonably active on facebook so i'm probably a little bit more diverse with what i put on there in terms of the type and style and work that i do um you know i'm moving into a lot more sort of critique based sort of work and one-on-one sort of work with people as well uh, i've just been doing that directly so far I've been trying to build a new website for about 12 years now, so stay tuned for the next one. And I haven't I know what it's like. I'm in the middle of rebuilding mine and it's, uh, it's taken way longer than I'd like. It's tricky for me because I, I shoot so many different genres. How do you yeah. how do you represent yourself in a way that does it justice without overcrowding people or, or being a bit too much? Yeah. And anyway, it's a whole other conversation, but that's 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 been my uh uh, a resting point for some time so uh yeah get, be, be patient with me everyone <laughs> <laughs> fantastic well thank you very much uh again paul it's been wonderful getting to know you better and learning uh, a lot more about you so thanks very much 
Well, real privilege to be. I, I had a look at your list of guests uh, before I came on the show, and uh, goodness me, my friend, you, you've got some incredible people and human beings and artists sort of mixed through there. So uh, a real privilege to be somewhere on the list. And yeah, you're on the high 80s. I can relate to that length. We're up to 104 for our next show. Yeah, I know this, it needs to be that committed. Number 90 for me. 90. Wow. So we're, we're, um, I know what it means to be that committed, uh, and for that length of time. So I, I can speak from a space of, um, of deep understanding with, with honoring the significance of the commitment you've made to, to the wider community grant. So thank you, sir. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks very much, Paul. Thanks again for listening to Landscape Photography World. I hope you enjoyed the show and keep listening because I'll be joined by some great guests in upcoming episodes. You can find my work in this podcast at grantswinburnphotography.com. I'm also on Vero, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram and Facebook. I'm Grant Swinburne. Hope to see you out shooting soon. Mm-hmm.